0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top,
1: top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt
0: one hundred ninety two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue and you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you want to scale up, maybe you want to sell, maybe you want to bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you want to pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder Score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're gonna get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. Okay, so is it better to own 100% of a small company or a small sliver of a big company. My next guest, Nicholas Seat, chose the latter. He built a company called Autitude and took venture capital rounds, took investment from Viacom, took investment from a group called Goose, which I'll let him explain to you. But ultimately, he owned a very small of what ultimately was a nine-figure exit, uh, a very large exit. And we get into the debate around whether it's better to own a big chunk of a small company or the inverse. And to tell you the whole story, here's Nicholas Seat. Nicholas Seat, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Very happy to be here. I'm super excited about this company. So, Autitude, um, you guys had a fascinating uh, kind of start. I want to hear about the story. What, what, what was it that you guys did?
1: So this is it's not a simple story, because if I tell you it's going to be super easy to build a 50 person company and then sell it to Adobe for, you know, as you say, nine figure type uh, level, then, you know, everybody's going to be jumping out there trying to do it. But let me just say it is not the easiest path to success. And uh, there are there are plenty of paths to success. The entrepreneurship one, it's going to be full of high highs and low lows. And uh, let me just say, if if you balance it all out, it does all cancel, and and it's about the same. I think is if, if I stuck with my day job at Deloitte Consulting when I got out of college, and uh, and just if stayed there and become partner or whatever.
0: Interesting. So talk about the company. What 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 practically speaking, what what did you guys do?
1: So initially, Auditude was designed to solve a personal itch of mine, which is I had thousands of mp3 files and they were misorganized and misnamed like the comma Beatles or track five dot mp3. I had no idea what these songs were and, and, and but I could listen to them and I could tell you immediately what they were. They were. And I was think, wondering why can't my computer do that? And so uh, I, I set out with that as my problem and the solution the only thing I knew how to do, I'm an engineer by education. I said, I'm gonna build an engineering solution to tell me what is the name of that song, which is of course what Shazam does today. But you know, back in the day, there was no Shazam. There was no, nobody had an iPod. There was no such thing. I was the only person with this problem, really. nobody else, I mean, you know, this is the back in the day of Creative Labs and Sonic Blue. Nobody had a big MP3 collection. But you know, I had this engineering itch to solve this problem, and I was fortunate enough to have uncles, one of them's deceased, but uncle uh entrepreneur uncles who were able to see my vision, even though it really wasn't that big of a vision but but were were curious enough to see what happens if they let me solve this problem and and they and uh some of the of my or their friends or my family friends were able to put together a round of a million dollars for me to go out and solve this problem. And I, I recruited a scientist from MIT. His name is Jeff Caruso. He's a PhD in mathematical topology and so forth. And he was able to put together this amazing algorithm that could tell you what song you were listening to by uh, listening to only a few seconds of the music,
0: so, how much of the and, company do you have to give up, Nicholas, when you took the million-dollar round of, uh, of financing?
1: Ah, uh, that was probably the largest amount I've ever given up of the company since I founded it, and that is something that you really are very kind of unprepared to take money in when you're just starting out. And and it's I know easy for me to say at this point, but you should try and get as far as you possibly can. Buy yourself without taking money in uh, before, you know, everybody is talking about how glorious it is to raise money and have an office and uh, you can buy a real uh, designer logo and have all this, I could have real business cards, et cetera, et cetera. But do you really need that stuff in order to validate the market? Find out, is there a customer who's actually willing to pay for my product.
0: So in your case, you didn't take that advice though. You did sort of, Hell go, no. your, your uncles sort of <laughs> went to their friends and you got a million dollars and you gave away, it sounds like a big chunk. Like, are we talking more than half, less than half? Yeah, um,
1: well, more than half. But, wow. but okay. you know, at the same time, if you are in those trenches and you you want to get started with uh, with a bang, as it were, and and uh, really get get going, you, you're sort of like, there, there is no... No reason not to take the money, right? Yeah. So were you it's able to very build, hard to say no to?
0: Were you able to build the algorithm that allowed you to identify which Beagle song was which MP3?
1: Exactly. Yes, and and then you know I I did end up getting lucky, and while there was no M, uh, MP3 market at the time, and I got my teeth kicked in by trying to sell it to companies like Creative Labs and so forth, there was a customer for that product, and which was. Fortunately, for me, the largest uh, uh, radio company in the world, which is Clear Channel, they needed exactly this product to identify which songs were being played on the radio. They would be able to listen They had a nationwide recording infrastructure that listened to every radio station, uh, uh, at least in the US and and you know uh, neighboring countries, to say who's hot, who's not?" which song is being played by which DJ, uh, how often, and so forth. And and then you're, you're sort of saying, well, isn't that information already there? There is no aggregated point that is not reliant on the DJs giving you their playlists and so forth. So they built out this recording infrastructure that monitored all these radio stations. But guess what? How did they identify these songs? They had people do it. These people listened to five seconds from anywhere in the song and said "Stay Away to Heaven" or you know Madonna or whatever, and Man, they typed those in the are, five. Those are not the people you want to play name that tune with. That's exactly right. They would <laughs> name that tune expert. They would and crush really that. Remarkable people, and uh, the problem is that these remarkable people had a problem. They didn't want to listen to smooth jazz, classical. Latin music, and I mean, can you blame them, right? they They were really domain specific. So they would only listen to pop and uh, you know, uh, rock and so forth. So what actually happened was Clear Channel said we need an automated solution so that we can do Canadian music, Mexican, hispanic music, and um and uh, uh, Christian music, and so forth. And so, my technology which i had for mp3s was had to be changed so that it could do streaming music it was a very big technology switch to go from mp3s to music on the stream but we made that because we we were great entrepreneurs and i'm sorry great engineers uh, to say nothing of our entrepreneurship ability, but so we we had the technology, we changed it over, and Clear Channel became our first uh, customer uh, for the for the then Attitude product. What did they pay
0: in a given year, Nicholas?
1: Uh, so we would say it's a million plus. You know, I'm not going to give the exact number, but it was very good for a tiny company yeah. like Attitude.
0: Yeah, However,
1: and this is the rub. When you are a tiny company like Auditude and you, your your product only does a few things that are not so useful to uh, the not solving many problems, and they ask for an exclusive, what do you say? I don't know. What did you say? <laughs> I say, you know, hell yes, right? And and we give them whatever they want. And so, unfortunately, from that position, we had given away our biggest market to one of the few customers in that market. So
0: they demanded exclusivity in the radio and broadcast? Like how broad was the exclusivity?
1: uh, For music, radio and broadcast, right, music. And so so we said, of course, we'll do that because, you know, as a tiny company, you don't have much leverage. You don't have much foresight, especially if it is your only customer uh, of that scale. And you really want to to do something. And fortunately for me, and I went to MBA school, my company paid for it. So really, you know, this is the 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 lifestyle that you can get to if your company is succeeding, you're allowed to do things like take a little break, get some additional people to work for you hire some employees, or in my case, go to MBA school to try and round out my business edges. Since I was, as I said, very engineering, at the time, so
0: Clearnet, a uh, Clear Channel, has given you a million dollars for this product, and then you go back and
1: get an MBA. Well, that, that's right, because I I saw that the taste that it wasn't engineering wasn't the way to do it. Going out there with a solution, looking for a problem, is a very painful way to do it. Because just imagine the amount of you're just trying to force fit your technology into solving somebody's problem. But then even then the solution isn't the perfect uh, fit for the problem. So I said, I need to go, I need my company to pay for me to go to MBA school. I'm gonna become a business person, not an engineer. And so I I was lucky enough to get into the UCLA uh, Anderson School of Business, where I did my fully employed MBA. So that is part-time MBA. Meanwhile, I was able to meet some really great people that were outside of my industry, completely different. And so one of my uh, good MBA colleagues was an ad buyer with one of the largest ad uh, agencies in America. And what she said was that currently there is no way to track whether or not the ads were played on TV. And poof! I was like, gee, wow, why can't that be automated? And she says, well, currently it's all done with the buddy system and people getting broadcast affidavits, which is broadcasters saying, here's where I played your ad, and I swear it is. And, you know, they do some spot checking or whatever, but it's by no means comprehensive. And the advertiser doesn't know if the ad was sped up, was it cut off, was it played at the wrong time, was it played twice in one ad break. Was it played first in rotation? Was it played last in rotation? Hmm. These sorts of things that the advertiser is entitled to know and the ad agency is uh, expected to be checking upon. So my elevator pitch became, we have a psychoacoustic modeling technology in order to characterize frequency waveforms, la la la. (laughs) That's
0: quite a that's quite a mouthful.
1: Right. That's the engineering elevator pitch. And and it became in my business plan development class with Professor Bob Foster, it became we track ads on TV and radio in order to find out if those ads were played correctly. And in a sixty billion dollar broadcast ad market, we find up to ten percent of ads are incorrectly played, entitling the advertiser to a refund. Hmm. That's a $6 billion opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that pitch won the Rice University Business Plan Competition, which is was or is the largest business plan competition in the world. I've always
0: wondered how these things work. So when you win a business plan competition, do they actually give you cash or are they giving you investment which to which you're giving them shares in the company? How does that work?
1: Right. Well, so it's, it's both. And I think uh, the cash prize was 20000 at the time, I believe, and the investment price was 100000 from uh, a group of Houston angels. However, these super angels, these, these I mean, like the founder of Compact Computer and uh, the founder of, of one of the, the board of trustees of Rice University, really high net worth, high, high net worth entrepreneur investors said it takes as much Time to put together a term sheet and a deal for hundred thousand dollars. Why don't we just make it a million dollars? And and so I I said yeah, why not? Let's <laughs> let's make it a million dollars. Let's and round so, that up to a million. Right. So Auditude was able to raise a million dollars from the the Houston um, Angel Network group called. Uh, the Goose Society of Texas, of, of Houston. Only anyway, in Te- Texas. <laughs> Only
0: in Texas would it be called the Goose Society. <laughs>
1: well, it's an acronym, Grand Order of Successful Entrepreneurs, and and oh, indeed geez. they were, and and we've had like the founder of Vanguard Ventures, Dr. Jack Gill. He joined our board. Uh, I mean, Little Auditude now has the founder of Compact Computer and the founder of Vanguard Ventures on the board. And now we're able to get real clarity as to how to scale and grow a business. So, so, you, uh,
0: so, they, so they've invested uh, a million bucks. What did they get in return for that?
1: Uh, so the nice thing about super angels, like we're talking about, is they're less in it about for the money. They're less in it for the return on investment as they are to see you succeed. And that sounds crazy because everyone's in it for the money sort of, but it it really makes a big difference on who you're getting the money from. It's very easy to say, I'll take the money from anywhere because I'm desperate to get going, but it really makes a night or day difference. And it, it for auditude, firstly, I was in I, at the beginning, as I said, with my uncles, and then with the grand order of successful entrepreneurs who are you know, individually extremely wealthy and in it for the next generation of entrepreneurs, university focused, education focused, et cetera, not money-grubbing as you might expect a more uh, less discriminating investor to be. And that paid out in dividends when it came, lo and behold, that this whole ad tracking thing was just a mirage. We went to market and I went to these, you know, senior vice president meetings at General Motors and uh, nationwide, big, big advertisers. And what they said was, this is a great technology, but you know what? We're actually paying our advertising agency, our ad agency, Starcom MediaVest, to do this job. So we're going to make you an introduction to those people because we're not your customer. The, the we have the problem; it's our money, but we're telling we're paying somebody else to solve that problem for us. And we said, okay. So, and we, as in me, had these top floor meetings with uh, the, the 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 senior ranks of these big agencies. And there's only a handful in America, but I met with most of them. What they said was. This is great technology, but we're on razor thin margins and, you know, we think we're doing our job and you want us to pay us to make us look bad in front of our customers. That is probably not going to happen. Well, actually, you know, they didn't say it's not going to happen. They said it's on the list and we'll get around to it next quarter when our budget's less, less uh, less or whatever, and guess what? That that next quarter just became the next quarter, and so forth. So, and where that did go? Where, so is
0: Clear Channel still paying you about a million dollars a year at this, at the, for the technology?
1: Yes, but at the same time, it's it was a sort of a graceful exit out of that business in that we didn't really want that to be our main focus. We wanted to focus on advertising, Tracking, ad tracking. So you got this
0: infinite loop where the agencies are saying, uh, "Look, I don't want you to go to the clients. The clients just go to the agencies, and you're you're getting nowhere. You're not making any money or getting any traction, even though the technology has got legs. So where do you go from here?
1: Well, so the lesson that I took away from that, and uh, this is a hard lesson that you know all entrepreneurs should have their teeth kicked in in this way in some in some time in their career is don't take a piece of somebody else's pie. Try and grow the pie instead. And uh, that particular lesson is, uh, it's kind of instinctive when you're starting out, because like, for instance, I, I, I look at, um, uh, for, for, for Auditude at any rate, what happened was that online video was exploding. Right. And so it it was the the real formative years of YouTube and Dailymotion and all those online video sites and online uh, video sites were growing because people were uploading uh, content and they were uploading at the time a paltry 40,000 videos a day. But that seemed like an awful lot. Who was checking to see if those videos were, you know, last night's uh, Stephen Colbert? Or, if they were an actual uh, quote quote legal video, right? Mm-hmm. because the rights issues involved with uploading a piece of quote copyrighted content are are very uh you know there's there's no question that the copyright owner doesn't want those videos out there mm-hmm. and so what I did was went to uh, the the big content holders Viacom MTV networks Comedy Central and uh, CBS and Nickelodeon and these are the uh, guys who own Fox.
0: these guys who spent good money to develop that content yeah, they don't want millions
1: off. of dollars mm. and what they' what they saw was that their content was just getting ripped off and uploaded to YouTube Hmm. more or less and I said well you know if, if you let us fingerprint your content, as we say, then we can identify that content on those sites and automatically tell you where they are, and and then you can issue a takedown notice and take them all down. Coincidentally, Viacom was busy suing YouTube uh, for their, quote, uh, billion-dollar lawsuit because of exactly these issues. And, uh, and I didn't know that at the time, but they said we need a technology that can uh, find out just how bad this infringement is. And they hired Auditude—it's you know that multi-million dollar kind of a deal—in order to fingerprint every video on YouTube and uh, allow them to tell exactly how much of their content needed to be taken off of YouTube. And that was so I, I didn't know it was a lawsuit until I was deposed, which is a very traumatic experience by um, by uh, you know lawyers from both sides to tell them about how did Auditude's technology actually work? Did Viacom
0: and, did Viacom ask for exclusivity like Clear Channel did? Right.
1: Well, they did, but then we said you know really if we're going to do it for you, we want to do it for. Everybody in the video industry we want to sell it to, and this is what actually happened to CBS and NBC and B Sky B and Sure. And, uh, so how did you
0: get around that? They would have, I'm sure, pushed back and said, No way, we're only doing the we're gonna we're gonna give you a small company, a multi-million dollar contract, we want exclusivity. Yeah. To which you said this, what? How did you defend how did you We get- said
1: no? And because we learned our lesson. Yeah. This is something that it's the hardest thing in business is to know when to say no. Right? And uh and if it wasn't for that fortitude from the board, from these investors that I told you from the Goose Group and my uncles and so forth, who have have now seen what happens when a technology just goes after a return on investment, that it doesn't it's not the best possible outcome. you You can't possibly make a good decision when you're hungry to get revenue in the door. why didn't you know,
0: why didn't Viacom just go out and hire? 10 brilliant MIT engineers to rip off your product.
1: Yeah, good luck with that. So we had lots of competitors who would claim to do exactly what we were doing. And we did ended up doing a head-to-head technology battle, battle royale. For for geeks, this is their favorite place to be, to just show them how good your technology is. And the MPAA, the Motion Picture of, uh, of America, whatever it's called, They did a head-to-head test of all the technologies, and Autitude came out on top, which really is to say, you can build a company if you just have great technology. But as I said, that, that I now believe is the hard way to do it. But fortunately for Autitude, we did have the best technology. Viacom ended up investing in Autitude to see us become a successful company, but not because we were helping them identify content to be taken off of YouTube, but because the C, uh, the the then CEO of Auditude, who is Adam Cahan, stepped down from his executive vice president position at Viacom in order to lead Auditude, which of course meant I had to give up my CEO hat. But I, I was willing to do that because it gave me ringside seats on a market that I had no possible ability to do what adam was doing he would call up his buddies from uh, cbs or nbc and they would sit down with him for coffee or whatever and i would be stuck in a technical due diligence with their operations people wow so
0: let's talk about that nicholas because i mean i think a lot of entrepreneurs listening would say wow i mean that that takes a lot of courage to 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 step down as the CEO and and bring someone else in. So what was that like emotionally for you to 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 have Adam come in and and sort of run the company?
1: Yeah, it was very very painful. It's this is your baby, right? This is the one you you've brought up from nothing and you grew it to in my case 10 people uh, at the time of the Viacom investment and you're literally saying here is my baby. I know it's the best thing for my baby, but I believe that I, you can do much better than I can do in that, you know, in that circumstance when it comes to talking about who the customer is and where you want the company to go. And of course, you have to give up a lot of equity, you have to give up a lot of uh, control and so forth. But you do that in order to have a glimpse of what it's like to be that company right? And so you're not calling all the shots anymore, but you're certainly a, a still a part of things. And that for me, the equation worked out just right. And, uh, you know, I can, I can look back on that at, at the numbers and so forth and th- say that was the right decision. Of course, that could easily have backfired. But, you know, you try and surround yourself with your betters, And then you don't have to worry so much about the details.
0: What points did you come to, you know, kind of what kind of sandpaper points or frictional points were there between,
1: uh, you and the new CEO? It was Adam, right? Yes, that's right. But, you know, so Adam, of course, had a very different way of doing things. He's not an engineer, like the founder, maybe he's not, uh, as, uh, good at the things that you do, but at the same time, he's very good at the things maybe you don't do, like he can pick up a call with, uh, you know, the this this chief marketing officer of a, of a major advertiser or, or whatever. Or he can put together a kind of plan that really change, changes the way attitude is going. And for me, that plan was saying, instead of taking all these videos down, why don't we leave them up there? and serve an ad on top of them. That way everyone wins. You can pay the advertiser, you can pay the content holder, the user gets to keep their quote pirated quote video, and and everyone wins. And that was the final pivot for Auditude. is that we became an online video ad platform instead of a copyright enforcement vehicle. And let me just tell you that the multiples for exit Uh, 10x between a copyright software program and an online video ad platform. An online video ad platform, which is ultimately what Adobe Corporation was looking for when they acquired the company in 2011, is night and day different from a copyright shop. Why is is that? Because one is a technology and one is a business, right? If we are enabling people to you know, stop piracy. We are just closing down one avenue of dollars leaking out of their bucket. If we are giving people a new method of doing online video advertising, we are growing the pie and we're allowing them to make money where there was none previously. What actually turned out was that They said, you know, it's not really the pirated videos that we're looking to monetize. It's our own videos we're looking to monetize. And we said, wait a minute, they're your videos. Why can't you monetize them? And they said, well, it's because we're using this online video platform called DoubleClick, which is, of course, Google's now. DoubleClick was designed for static web pages. DoubleClick had no idea about rights issues associated with video, like Who pays the guy who put the clock up in the background? Who pays the writer, the producer? That video can only run in Southeast Asia when the movie is not playing at the same time as the television version, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these bunch of weird rules that are called rights issues that DoubleClick did not have any way to deal with because it only served banner ads. Auditude was able to come in there with its copyright enforcement technology where we understood lots of these issues with video. We were able to change the Autitude, uh, you know, detection platform or whatever it was into an ad online video ad uh, platform to allow people to monetize both their pirated and their legal videos, which is why, as I said, Auditude became the fifth largest video ad server in the world at the time of its acquisition. We had millions of dollars of advertising running through the Auditude platform uh, on behalf of huge advertisers, on top of really great, uh, you know, primetime type content. And so, what is the what is the revenue
0: at the time of the acquisition like? What are you guys? What what is Auditude billing when you start to well, think about Well, so selling? let's
1: just call it in the millions, in the multi millions.
0: In the multi-million. So just to, like, if I could get a little closer to, like, are we talking uh, less than 50 million? Above?
1: Yeah, well, let's call it less than 50 greater than 10. How about that? Yeah, Does okay. That that's, yeah, that's, that's super good. So right. we're somewhere so, between but, 10 know,
0: and 50 million in revenue.
1: Right, but, you know, we are now a video ad platform. We are not an online tracking company. See the difference? And then... Ultimately, all of that amazing technology got wrapped up into this consumer app called Into Now, which uh, I don't know if you can still download it. But anyway, Into Now was bought by Yahoo. So they got all the technology and Adobe got the ad platform, which from a technology standpoint, I find it a lot simpler to understand than, you know, psychoacoustic pattern matching. There was really no well, I don't know. There was no real rocket science behind it. So uh,
0: help me understand that. So so you sold this company to two different companies? That sounds kind of odd. <laughs> how it, it how did you make odd, that
1: work? But yeah. <clears throat> at the time, we did have two very different products. One was a consumer app, and the other was that B to B ad platform
0: and the consumer app was was kind of Shazam for video, right? Is that yeah, okay. sort of
1: think of it like that. So you can could- and uh, so that's Adam Cahan stepped down from Auditude to run that company into now, and the the big company Auditude, the ad platform, was run by a new CEO called Jeremy Helfand. He was the number two guy from uh, a public company, and he stepped down from that in order to to take Auditude to the next level. And he certainly did that by continuing along the path we were already on by really making Auditude a world-class video ad platform.
0: Wow. So at this point, like, what's your role? I mean, you've got all these highfalutin (laughs) CEOs, you know, Adam and
1: Jeremy, these like hotshot guys. I had uh, five people to do every single one of the 10 things I used to do right? And so what does that make me? I was a cheerleader. I would be trying to help the the people in the company that were not being heard. I was a very different role from the role that I used to do, where I used to be meeting with clients and writing code and all that stuff. I would do pretty much anything because I was available. And that's something that you know, for the founder to try and make themselves feel useful at their own company, it's really this very uh what do you call it? It's a really interesting experience. It's not for everyone for sure, but at the same time I was starting a family. And uh and you know, when you have babies and startup, I I I recommend to my students when I teach entrepreneurship. That not to do both at the same time because startups and babies are both equally time and mind and money consuming. So it's something that um, I was privileged to have two daughters and uh, was very much focused on them at the same time as trying to hopefully close out this auditude deal before uh, the wheels came off, etc. But But the, the timing worked just right. I was able to relocate to my new home in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and. And I've got, uh, like I said, two daughters and uh, a new new life here as well. So you're in this
0: kind of cheerleading mode. You've lost sort of the kind of uh, like CEO mantle a while ago. And and so now you're sort of cheerleading. How long would it have been, like if you'd sent an email to Jeremy, uh, the new CEO of Autitude, like how long would it take him to get back to you?
1: It, I still had his uh, attention and I was still, you know, going to the office and so forth, but it became sort of like he knew better how to do it than I did, how to scale a business, because I am very good at the early stages of the business, you know, really getting that product, product um, market fit. And really trying to make shake the bushes and 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 get the first beta clients going and making relationships with their tech people and their teams, and really and and smoothing over those things than he was at being able to recruit really a grade talent and being able to raise the next ten million, which we finally ended up raising, like, 20-something million from really tier-one VCs like Greylock and Redpoint and uh, Granite and um, getting money from customers and so forth.
0: And so, so what, is, what is your personal involvement in that round of financing? I mean, do you have any say? Are you are you at the table when when Jeremy raised that round?
1: Or do they uh, kind of because, tell you about you know, it after the fact? Because I am a shareholder, and so are my initial... <laughs> round of investors early investors we are all shareholders as we say common shareholders as opposed to all the investors are preferred shareholders and you know they preferred is they have preference they get their money out first their money comes in last their money comes out first and so defending the common shareholders is the job of the person who of the founder of the people who first put in that uh that That faith money, right? because it is it is you're still responsible to them. you still want there to be a positive outcome for them. So you are watching out for your common shareholders and really making sure that the people that you brought on board to do that are doing their jobs as well.
0: so how do you how do you think about dilution uh, because this is your uncle's money that that they put in the business all those years ago. Uh, the goose guys—they're you know—they—they they put their faith into you personally, not Jeremy, not Adam, and and now the, you got other characters, these highfalutin kind of uh, like yep. hired guns. How That's did, right. How did you sort of ensure that the people who invested you in you personally weren't diluted to nothing?
1: They—they they have to share your vision. Firstly, and and I mean, even if they sorry, who lose,
0: does Adam I'm sorry, and sorry the, the or? people
1: the people at the very beginning, your co-founders, I guess your I'm your assuming, your I angels.
0: Guess, yeah, I'm assuming they shared your vision. or they wouldn't have given you money in the first place. But I, but, but as, not
1: just shared your vision, but believe in you personally. They want you to succeed. Yeah, but
0: I get that. But now you're you're a, you're a common shareholder as well. At every round of money that these guys take on from even more fancy venture capitalists, you guys are getting diluted. So right. how do you sort of protect yourself and the people who invested in you as, as, as the dilution keeps happening? It,
1: it comes back to, to saying no, right? Having What power do you have to say no, though? It, it is still your company, and it's absolutely your right to be a small engineering shop if that is your thing, right? If you want, you can always walk away. And that is really key is to have those levels of fallback, being able to say with, you know, without being desperate, like without having to say who's going to pay for, you know, this new employee that I just made all these promises to. It's a very it is high pressure. But at the same time, if you do it right, you will never be in a position where you are desperate to take either customer money or investor money.
0: But that's all I
1: can, yeah, the best but... advice I can give. It's not that good, but you really have to make sure you're never in that cash crunch position. And that probably means you shouldn't be hiring that person. You should just try and do the job yourself or with a contractor, at least to start with. If you had it
0: to do over again,
1: like right from the beginning. I say find the customer first. Then with that customer's assistance, Build the product that solves that problem, and I know that's easier said than done. But there are a lot of problems out there. In fact, the problem is the easy part. For when you get good at analyzing situations and listening, and putting yourself out there and asking questions, really being very, uh, I, I think, uh, who is it? Guy Kawasaki says it. He's be naive. Oh, actually, that was Steve Jobs. He said, "Be stupid. You know, don't afraid to be naive and stupid." It's it's the it's to those people who kind of open their souls to the universe. That's where good things happen. I, I allow guess allow yourself.
0: Sorry. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. I was just saying. I, yes, go I, ahead. I was just like I get. I, um, I love this notion of finding the customer first because that that is uh, one of the core themes that, throughout our discussion i might would it be fair to say then that you would um well i, I shouldn't put words in your mouth w- would you go so far as to say that you wouldn't then uh seek outside capital or significant outside capital if you had it to do over again um or or maybe maybe that's not fair to say what what are your it, thoughts it on raising money is,
1: it is absolutely fair to say because when you take other people's money you owe them You have to deliver, whether that's a customer or an investor. You have made a promise to them. Having a clean, you know, uh, cap table, as it were, allows you to do things that you would otherwise be unable to do. And that's talking with maybe customers who are not in your space, maybe talking with different groups of people who maybe you didn't even know you you were interested in that space before. So in other words, it is that clean slate. You're able to do all this stuff on paper. And I, like I, I said, I went to business plan competition. It was a great experience. So even if you're not the founder, join somebody else's team at an accelerator or a, um, a mixer or whatever. Really try and put yourself out there in situations that you're not comfortable with just in order to find that next amazing opportunity that next customer problem that you say oh you know what i actually know somebody who might be able to help with that who might be able to solve that problem i think that is the right way to do things
0: so let me ask you this philosophically and and this would be you know the, with the benefit of now being a father and having some distance from this obviously um, if if your daughter came to you in, in 10 or 20 years, more like 20 years, I guess, and said, um, you know, Dad, I've got an opportunity to own a very small sl- slice of a big company or I've got an opportunity to own 100% of a smaller company.
1: What advice <laughs> would you give her? I would say stick stick with your day job. Make sure that all your bases are covered. Your mortgage is on track, you've paid off your car, your student loans, or whatever. Make sure that that is all done and your career is on track. And then when the time is right, and you have found an opportunity, probably within an area of your expertise, then it's time to start taking risks. As long as your significant other, your partner, is also Able to fill in the gaps. You didn't, in the answer, you,
0: you didn't answer my question, though. That's very good conservative advice from a dad. I would give it to my kids as well. <laughs> but but again, she's going to say, "Yeah, yeah, Dad, I got all that stuff covered." But I, you know, I've got an entrepreneurial, you know, opportunity in
1: front of me. I could, I could, I could own one hundred percent of it, but it's going to be smaller. Yep. Or, I say, I say, suck it up and take smaller piece of a bigger pie any day. It's something that there's lots of you know mental glory in saying i am the ceo and the buck stops here and all that stuff but there are just way too many things that need to be done for you to worry about anything other than product market fit and if somebody's already solved that in some way and you can help them then i think that's a much shorter path to success and probably uh, uh, you, you, you will live to fight another day instead of burning yourself out on something that is just a dream until a customer pays for it. Yeah,
0: yeah, I get, I get that. I guess I was kind of driving at whether, you know, at, at, you, you took on a number of significant rounds of, of venture capital. Uh, obviously, Clear Channel was, was a big uh, player. Viacom owned a piece. Uh, the Goose Guys had a piece. Um, in retrospect, you could have owned 100%, although it would have been a much smaller company. And I was trying to drive at whether, you know, if you had to do over again, even if it was a tenth the size or one twentieth the size, would you rather have owned
1: 100% than... Yeah, no, that's an interesting uh, philosophical question. Mm -hmm. But I think you do, somewhere in your life, you need to do both. And I, I know that's easier easier said than done for for certain. But uh, you know, like like right now, I'm looking at with my exit, with my uh, cash pile, as it were, with my retirement fund paid for, with my student for, uh 503, whatever it's called, uh, my kids' college paid for. What do I do now? And now I'm looking at doing lifestyle stuff. I'm looking at teaching. I'm looking at building smaller websites. I, because I live in Los Alamos, I can't help but do technology stuff. Like uh, I'm working on this neat startup called Sfion, which allows you to store information for ten thousand years and so forth. You know, I can do stuff like that because I have this this stability from my previous endeavors. So the question is, should I do that smaller lifestyle business first, or should I try and do as big as I can do first? And I would tell my daughters, try and do the big one first, because you can always fall back on that restaurant business that you are kicking around. If that doesn't work, well, maybe you can do both. Good advice. Did you buy
0: yourself any sort of trophy? I know you got sort of, you sound like a fiscally very conservative guy. You got the the
1: Uh, 401k done
0: and the education budget. Did you you
1: you buy anything like a Ferrari or anything kind of crazy? I bought bought a ridiculous red Hummer. No, you didn't. And an RV to go with my. Did you really buy a Hummer? And let me just say, worst car in the whole world. (laughs) And now I'm. I, I well I sold it and I I bought a I now a Toyota Sienna minivan. <laughs> to but uh, the a little. the RV was uh was a bad idea, poorly executed, and but it was <laughs> it was fun for a few summers.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Nicholas, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Uh, is there a Twitter feed or yep, a website just, you, you want to send people uh,
1: to? My website is just my name, NicholasSeat.com. and my email is just my name, nick@seat.com. And uh, I'm always happy to talk with prospective or aspiring entrepreneurs. And uh, I've I've been uh, talking uh, lots of this stuff, but you know, it, lots of it doesn't connect with the entrepreneur. And I'm always happy to relate my experience to their current uh, experiences as well. So always happy to do that.
0: Nicholas, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, John.